0: This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and Policy Insider, Chris Condolucci. Good day to our Health Plan Alliance listeners. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. Welcome to our June Policy Unpacked podcast. And uh, as always, I welcome our colleague, Chris Condolucci, Hi, Chris. I think uh, Memorial Day's behind us, so summer's officially here.
1: Yes. Hooray to summer, or at least that's what my kids would say. Well,
0: I feel the same way. (laughs) During COVID, I don't know how you've been, Chris, but it seems like time both speeds up and slows down at the same time. No doubt. And uh, I kind of feel that way, you know, going into summer. And in fact, we talked about that a little bit last month when we were talking about things hurrying up and waiting, hurrying up and waiting. But with summer here, there's hot weather in Dallas. We've already had a whole string of 90-degree days. How's it been there in Washington?
1: Yeah, it's been up and down for most folks in the, what I will call, the middle latitude of the country, going all the way from the Midwest over to Pittsburgh, where my mother lives, where I grew up originally, and you get the same weather in D.C., the weather's been so up and down all spring, but now it's starting to moderate and to a certain degree moderate in in some respects the wrong direction because it's getting a little hot and steamy in D.C., and uh, that is the sign of summer.
0: So it's hot there already, huh? Well, let's continue that metaphor because that's an interesting, you know, turn of phrase. What's hot sometimes, you know, has a tendency to burn out as well. So maybe that's a good place for us to start. Yeah.
1: And I I do like the hot metaphor and uh, we'll keep on that theme throughout the podcast here. But yes, so the temperature in D.C.'s, you know, spiking a bit, but also, you know, some things on the legislative front, you know, things have been quiet over the past couple of months, maybe starting around March But now that we're past the Memorial Day recess and Congress is back in session, you know, folks might be reading in the news that Senator Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Schumer are restarting discussions about reviving some form of the Build Back Better Act agenda that we have been talking about for about a year and a half. And those discussions actually might start heating up. Uh, Throughout June, possibly even through July, and then to the point that you mentioned about potentially fizzling out, well, those efforts might indeed fizzle out. And just briefly, because we've talked about this before, why this is important is because we've had this ongoing interest in the extension of the enhanced premium subsidies that were increased back in March of 2020 through the American Rescue Plan and which the only piece of legislation that an extension of the enhanced premium subsidies can ride on is a reconciliation bill. And a reconciliation bill is a partisan exercise only needing a majority in the Senate, which means you need 50 Democratic senators to say yes. And so the problem that Majority Leader Schumer has, as well as many of the Democrats in the House, is Senator Manchin. But Senator Manchin has said, look, I will support a reconciliation bill that includes climate change reforms, drug pricing reforms, and measures that reduce the deficit. And that's my ask, being Senator Manchin saying that. If that package were to materialize, an extension of the enhanced premium subsidies could be attached to that. But in a recent brief that I wrote or that we sent out, I actually gave the extension a 1% chance of happening. And the larger reason why is because putting together a reconciliation bill is very, very difficult. You have the Senate parliamentarian that you must deal with, you have diverging interests among uh, different members of uh, the same political party, here the Democrats, that could get in the way of yet another iteration of the Build Back Better Act. So concluding here, Dennis, things will get hot on these discussions. There has been some discussion already about extending the enhanced premium subsidies, but I still feel that that will all fizzle out by August time frame.
0: Well, Chris, I think part of it is just that there's so much going on in Washington right now. So much has everyone's attention from gun regulations to the upcoming elections. No doubt. So, you know, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, what's going to make it through all of that. So what else is on your hot topic list?
1: Well, shifting to kind of the regulatory front, which, uh, again, things have been somewhat quiet over the past couple of months. But, you know, we've at least had plenty to talk about. And as everyone knows, I'm good about talking. Um, But what is on the hot topic list is so in May, the federal departments indicated when it comes to the surprise billing requirements that actually the federal department said we're going to issue final regulations by May. Well, May came and went. And really, once we were in middle of May, the federal departments came out and said, hey, you know what? Remember how we said we we're going to have the surprise billing rigs out by May? Well, that's not going to happen. We're going to push it to, quote unquote, air quotes, early summer. We didn't really know what early summer meant, but early summer, we can kind of connect some dots and triangulate as to when we think that might happen. So the speculation is that we could very well see final surprise billing regs come out June 30th or July 1st, and much of that speculation is driven by The federal departments are notorious in dropping a big, noteworthy piece of guidance, in this case, final surprise billing regs, right before a holiday. And July 1st is right before the July 4th holiday. So that's where the speculation lies. Now, I'll offer this, Dennis. In these final regs that we might see, June 30th, July 1st, we're expecting that A lot in that reg will track the July 1st interim final rule as it relates to the qualifying payment amount and how to develop it. So we don't expect much changes there. We could see some changes and or clarifying guidance on the use of third-party databases. There has been a ton of questions on that. We've covered that a bit, Dennis, in our podcast and in our writings. So we very well could see that. Now, when it comes to... Other changes that we could see as as we know or folks here know, we've covered it, you know, the Texas District Court invalidated what's called the rebuttable presumption standard and the federal departments responded by eliminating all of the references to rebuttable presumption standard in any guidance that the federal government has issued thus far. We could very well see something on the rebuttable presumption standard in this final reg. Either The federal departments are going to double down on the rebuttable presumption standard and be like, look, we're right. And we think we're going to win in court. So we're going to further explain why this standard is there and why we're effectuating congressional intent. And so it's going to be there going forward. We could see that on the other end of that spectrum. We could very well see the federal department say, "Okay, we cry uncle. The Texas court said that rebuttable presumption standard is gone. We get it. We're not going to include that in final rules going forward. So that won't be around anymore. So we could see that. But the really thing is, is it's an open question. We do not know where the federal departments will go on uh, the rebuttable presumption standard. But really, other than that, I don't think we're expecting any huge, big bombshells to come out once these final regs are released.
0: Well, Chris, you know, um. I guess I'll believe it all when I see it, because as you say, timelines keep changing and uh, the approaches keep changing. So uh, we'll keep our eye out for what those final surprise billing regulations finally look like and uh, ensure that our listeners are always up to date. So thank you for that. Sure. Another ongoing topic, Chris, that you've mentioned, is uh, supposed to end on July fifteenth, if I have it right. And you kind of refer to it. That's the COVID public health emergency, and the reason that that's so important, and why we're, I think, watching the timeline here over the summer, is that the administration had told the states that they would be informed sixty days in advance of the administration's decision to end. The public health emergency. And like I mentioned, you know, I have lost track a little bit during these last two years of COVID, but if my calendar is, is still right, 60 days prior to July 15th was May 16th. And I don't think, uh, I didn't hear any announcement come out. What are you hearing on this topic?
1: Yeah, and you're exactly right. May 16th was A date that almost everybody had circled on their calendar, at least everybody focusing on the public health emergency and healthcare related issues due to the fact, Dennis, that you just stated is the administration informed states. Hey, states, if we, the administration, are going to end the public health emergency, we're going to give you 60 days advance notice. And May 16th was that 60 days in advance of July 15th. And we got no announcement, no putting states on notice that the end is near and so it's almost an inverse you know kind of conclusion here reverse engineering what the administration had promised and that is if they were going to end they would have said so and since we didn't hear anything that means that the public health emergency is not going to end on July 15th so Everybody in the industry is now accepting that we will hear an announcement closer to July 15th of another extension. Now, just to give some detail or some background on some thinking relating to the extension yet again, because there was speculation in the run up to May 16th that the administration would not extend the public health emergency. I mean, we're doing pretty good in, you know, pushing COVID into our rearview mirrors. Yes, we do have some spikes here and there, but generally speaking, I think we feel all pretty good about where we're at. And the Biden administration, the White House certainly wanted to announce that the pandemic was over and we were going to have somewhat of a COVID-free summer. That would definitely be liberating for most of the American public looking forward to the summer. But the politics of extending the public health emergency or ending it really came to the fore meaning if there is or was a spike that could happen in the fall well that's right before the midterm elections in november and that would obviously not look good for the president and or any democratic candidate at the federal or state level running for office in addition As we've discussed, ending the public health emergency uh, would have a significant impact on health coverage, and in particular, Medicaid coverage. As we've discussed, um, states have been able to enroll individuals and allow those individuals to remain enrolled in Medicaid uh, with really without any questions asked during the public health emergency. But once that ends, States are going to be required to quote unquote, air quotes, redetermine Medicaid eligibility. Again, we've discussed this before. And if the public health emergency was ended on July 15th, there would likely be a lot of headlines saying, oh, everybody's going to now start losing coverage. And that would have confused a lot of folks and wouldn't have played well as we move closer to campaign season and closer to the midterm elections. Now, And honestly, I'll say this last comment, Um, in my opinion, arguing or stating that people will lose coverage right away, even if the PHE ended, is somewhat intellectually dishonest because the administration actually has said to states, we will give you 12 additional months post the end of the public health emergency to conduct your redeterminations. So there really is a, a long off ramp for individuals who are on Medicaid right now due to the public health emergency But we all know how the game is played, unfortunately, and that played into a little bit of the decision as well. And actually, let me footnote, I do expect that the public health emergency could very well be extended all the way through January of 2023, if not April of 2023, for some of the political reasons that I discussed, because the elections are coming up. So,
0: Chris, you're actually telling us that politics and the election are going to play a role in this? You got me. I'm really surprised. (laughs) Thanks. So again, something else for us to continue to watch over these summer months. Chris, uh, the topic I want to turn to next is maybe the hottest that I'm hearing about now from our members. They're constantly bringing up the issues around network rates and out-of-network allowed amounts. And especially, you know, this concept of machine readable files and, you know, just a lot of questions about, well, who's doing the reading of these files and what are the formats and and how do we deliver on that? And again, if my calendar is right, we're only about three weeks away from July the 1st. And I know that that's an important deadline on this topic. So again, get us caught up to speed. And what are you seeing out in the marketplace? I mean, are insurers lined up for doing this? And it applies to both insurers and self-insured plans, if I'm correct.
1: Yep. no, that is 100% correct. And yes, I I think we both agree that the hottest topic right now and, and of the summer certainly is the July 1st effective date where insurance carriers and self-insured plans must disclose in-network rates and out-of-network allowed amounts on a public website through a machine-readable file. And now to your question, you know, to an extent, I'll even simplify it, you know, are carriers and plans ready? And as a general matter, I I would answer that in the affirmative. I really do think that a lot of the carriers and plans are ready I would say the biggest questions that I have been getting is, to your point, how to comply or how to populate this machine-readable file. As most know by now, CMS created this machine-readable file schema, as they call it, or format, which, as the non-tech guy, I will say is a glorified Excel spreadsheet, but there is certain ways to input information. And we covered uh, an issue relating to that in our last podcast when it comes to alternative reimbursement arrangements. But we have been getting questions really more on the self-insured side of things, which is if I'm a carrier and I uh, have an ASO agreement with a self-insured plan and I'm serving as their TPA, how do I help them with their machine-readable file? Or even do I help them with their machine-readable file. And my response there has been, the regulations require the plan itself to provide a link to the machine-readable files on the plan's website. So the responsibility falls on the plan here, the self-insured plan here. So a self-insured plan does have to put that machine-readable file together. Well, especially if you're a smaller or mid-sized employer that's self-insured, you might not be sophisticated enough to go ahead and put that machine-readable file together. So you need help. You need help from someone else. Well, that someone else will likely be the carrier through their ASO agreement, serving as the TPA. And if the carrier is willing to help, then the question is, is, well, carrier asks, do I include the link to the machine-readable files on my website? Can the plan link to my website to which then they can access the machine-readable file? And really the answer is yes to those last two points. And I'll streamline it by saying, a self-insured plan can put a link on their website that then links to the carrier or TPA's website that then has a link to the machine-readable files with information specific to that self-insured plan and the provider network associated with that self-insured plan. So that's the biggest question that I've been getting recently, Dennis. From a carrier perspective, it's a little bit easier because the insurance carriers can simply include on their website links to machine readable files to all of their provider networks and all of their commercial business and, As I've been hearing, most of the carriers, if not all of them, are uh, ready, if not about to be ready, to include those links uh, on their websites come July 1st. Now, last comment on my end here, Dennis, is, you know, we're still kind of in the wild, wild west here. We have no idea how folks are going to react to this information, how uh, easily accessible the information is going to be. But one thing that struck me the other day, Dennis, and I wrote on this in our brief, is the RAND Corporation put together a study of which they do every year where they look at private insurance reimbursements relative to Medicare payments. And in the past, actually, some employers have looked at that RAND study and used it as a tool to go to medical providers to renegotiate their contracts, their prices. Because based on the RAND study, the providers that the employers were contracting with were charging a very, very high percentage relative to Medicare. And it actually worked. Many of these employers actually were able to renegotiate lower prices. So query whether the fact that all of this pricing information will now be available really to everybody, meaning employers, employers, participants, benefit consultants, TPAs, policymakers, entrepreneurs who are building startup tools um, in this transparency space. So a lot of that information is going to be out there. So query whether employers are going to be able to shop around, renegotiate. Will, however, this result in maybe a normalization of prices where There's not much savings to be found because of the normalization. Or maybe you're a carrier with a low cost provider network. And heck, maybe costs go up because they see that the other providers down the street are charging a higher percentage. So it remains to be seen what behavioral changes will occur. But nonetheless, uh, this information is going to be out there. We do have precedent where information has been used in a powerful way. So we'll see what happens, Dennis. Well, Chris, those
0: are, I think, profoundly important statements and concepts that you just talked about there. Oftentimes, regulations have unintended consequences, right? So we don't really know how behavior might change, but we know that it will change, and so much of our conversations have been around the regulatory and compliance elements of all of this, when there is this deeply important strategic implications Correct. for our members as well, which you just touched on there. So thank you. We need to keep our lens focused on both you know, the operational regulatory compliance and the strategic Components of these new regulations as well. Well, in the last few minutes uh, that we have here, Chris, I've got another topic that I think our members are really interested in. And and that's speaking of providers and networks. You've talked before about the new network adequacy standards that are set forth in that 2023 notice of benefit and payment parameters. I think you talked a little bit about that at our last podcast. And you mentioned that if a carrier can't satisfy those new standards, the carriers might ask for some sort of waiver or accommodation through what's called, and I'll quote here, the network adequacy justification process. And that, to me, sounds like typical Washington bureaucratic jargon. So can you uh, walk us through that a little bit more? Do you have a more information on how that process would work and how CMS will enforce these new standards?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I could definitely try to be brief here because we covered this in the last podcast, but we do have some more information on the network uh, adequacy justification process. And, you know, this is now pivoting more to the practical, which many of our members care about. Um, We talked a little bit more about the strategic, just about transparency. Here's the more practical. And While this may not be the hottest topic in the book, it's certainly hot under the collar for some carriers who are a little bit concerned about how CMS is going to enforce these new network adequacy standards, which in particular is uh, looking at the time and distance as it relates to specific providers and access to specific providers in the plan's network. So as everyone knows, There's the Qualified Health Plan, the QHP certification process, and we're coming up on the submission of QHP certification. And CMS has indicated that carriers should try their best when it comes to submitting their initial certification. And as a general matter, CMS will almost as a quasi-attestation take the carrier at their word based on the information that they put in that initial certification submission saying, hey, CMS, this is how we, the carrier, are meeting these new network adequacy standards. Now, if CMS feels after reviewing that certification that there's some defects there, there's not enough information, or they've identified something that's problematic, or even the carrier said, hey, I can't contract with XYZ provider because there's a big lake in between where most of the population lives in the county and me as the provider therefore i can't meet the standard well cms will come back to the carrier with what they're calling a pre-populated network adequacy justification template and that pre-populated form will be coming from cms's plan management community to which then the carrier must add additional information and justification and reasons as to either why they're meeting the standards or why the carrier cannot meet the standard. And if the carrier cannot meet the standard and it is justifiable through this justification process, then CMS will provide the carrier with an accommodation as it relates to complying with the network adequacy standards for the plan year. Now, the last comment I'll make, Dennis, is, CMS has also indicated there will be ongoing reviews of network adequacy standard compliance. So in the event you did say, hey, I can't contract with provider XYZ because of a big lake in front of us. Well, CMS might check up on you and they might look to see whether that big lake is indeed there. And if it's not, you're going to be in trouble. If it is, then likely they will continue to provide some sort of accommodation. But it's just an example of my trying to illustrate how CMS will, yes, take the quasi-attestation, come back to the carrier and say, cure any defects that we've identified. But regardless of whether you've cured or we've taken you at your word, we're going to still check up on you. So make sure you're compliant. Well, Chris, as always,
0: you've covered a lot of very important information today. Thank you for helping us keep our focus on what we need to track and what we need to pay attention to, both operationally and strategically. So uh, I'll just send us off here by telling you, you know, stay cool if you can as uh, both the weather and the politics heat up this summer in Washington.
1: Yeah, and I will add, Dennis, you know, Because it's going to get a little bit hotter, if not hot, hot, both temperature as well as legislative and regulatory front. So kind of fasten your seatbelts come end of this month, past July 4th and into August. And we are here for you always. So enjoy. And we look forward to talking to everybody soon. Well, thank you, Chris. It's great to have you along
0: with us all. So to all of our listeners, take care. And we'll talk with you again next month
1: thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our policy brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming policy forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.